if you want to do something that not just wins cans, but I think above that is specifically, you know, patient-centric and impactful, actually make a difference, then I think looking to why other people have won and you haven't probably is, is a good starting point. That's Ben Adams, an editor here at Fierce Life Sciences. Later, we'll hear more from him about what went down at Cannes Lions. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, August 18th. For the past couple of weeks, Fierce's Zoe Becker has been covering the cancer drug shortage plaguing the industry. She talked about topics like rationing drugs, increasing supply, protecting the supply chain from this happening again in the future. So I sat down with Zoe to go over that coverage and find out what she learned. And here's how it went. At Fierce, we report on drug shortages just about every week. But this one seems to be a level up in severity, so much that it's now getting a pretty steady stream of mainstream coverage through outlets like the New York Times and CNN. I know that part of the reason you wanted to learn more about it from both a manufacturing side and an oncologist side was to explore some of the factors that make it such a drastic shortage. Were you surprised, Zoe, by what you learned? Um, You know, yes and no. I think that I kind of expect it to be sort of like a major manufacturing failure, something that went really wrong. But it kind of turned out to be just pretty much business as usual that just happened to impact a major drug that isn't made by many other manufacturers and is used all the time and is super important. Um, Because it kind of started with the FDA inspecting a plan in India that makes these chemotherapy drugs. And then they ding some deficiencies, and so they had to stop production. And that happens all the time, of course. But since this drug is so important and so majorly used, and there's not really any exact replacements for it, and not many other people make it, it kind of just all went down from there. And it kind of was a ripple effect. But it just brings to light a lot of the existing weaknesses in the supply chain. Um And then another thing that did surprise me was I hadn't thought really about how the media and those early reports of low supply would play into it. Um, And I thought it was interesting how the first reports kind of made hospitals panic a little bit and buy up supply, which is it makes sense because, I mean, that's kind of human nature. We saw it in COVID when we first heard about that, you know, uh, toilet paper got bought out and hand sanitizer. In addition to that, the situation is really involving all aspects of the market, Um, you know, manufacturers, regulatory, FDA, drug makers and providers. Everyone's kind of doing what they can on their side, but they're also kind of, you know, playing the blame game. It's going to take a whole effort to kind of strengthen the supply chain and these risks and vulnerabilities that are always present, but just happen to really mess up this one drug. Since our interviews were recorded, the FDA has now approved 10 more lots of cisplatin from China's Chilu Pharma. Based on what we've heard from the two experts that you interviewed, how much of a difference is that going to make? It's obviously good that they're getting more of the drugs into the country. And 10 is more than the past importation approval, which was four. I'm not really sure exactly how many vials are in each lot, but I would be curious to know that. I think both guests kind of pointed to the necessity of policy interventions. 
um, which you know could include an earlier warning system, um, some way to track these these supply chain vulnerabilities that could lead to a shortage. Um, I did hear about recently um, in the Senate, some senators did propose a legislation to essentially track um, the supply chain to to keep a closer eye on these risks, which is obviously could be very helpful. Um, I think they want to track, you know, the locations of the the manufacturers that make certain drugs and then the inspections that happen there um, so that they can kind of have more early warning on when the supply will run low, which I think could be really helpful. Um, but obviously, I don't know if that would help with this shortage specifically since we're already kind of deep in the effects of that. Um, and then there's also the issue of you know, pricing and profitability on these these drugs that specifically are in shortage because the two chemotherapies are very cheap. Um, so the profitability there isn't there isn't a big profit margin, which is causing some generic makers who have made it to shut down because they just can't afford to operate with those profits. One of the things that strikes me the most about this drug shortage is how crucial these medicines are to cancer treatment and how hospitals are forced to essentially tell some patients they can't receive treatment. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's really striking a chord in so many people and making this shortage so real, you know, as opposed to reading a shortage notice on the FDA website, we're hearing from patients um, who are being told that they can't receive treatment because, um, you know, as one of our experts told me that they're kind of prioritizing patients based on which whose cancer is more curable, which is, you know, scary. Um, I can't even imagine hearing that on a patient side. But so going into the interviews, I definitely wanted to get a sense about how crucial these drugs are. And I was surprised that they've been on the market for so long, decades even. Um, and they're often used in a kind of a, they're like a baseline. They're often used in combination with other drugs. So I know it's easier said than done, but I guess I was surprised that there wasn't more of a set plan about for if there were neither of these chemotherapies available. But all in all, I think after exploring both the manufacturing side and the provider side of this issue, I think that this shortage could potentially be something of a wake-up call across the industry, hopefully on the regulatory side too, about these supply chain weaknesses and vulnerabilities that can lead to something as severe as this. Well, thanks for talking with me, Zoe, and for covering this important topic right now. Yeah. Each year, Fierce Pharma compiles a list of the top compensated CEOs in the industry. It's usually the same handful of execs who guide the largest companies, but this year there were some surprises in our list of the top 15. I've got staff writer Kevin Dunlevy here with me to go over the list of the highest paid CEOs in pharma. Hi, Kevin. Hello, Teresa. Hey, tell us about the list. There's some new names on the list this year, including three from Seijin. Yeah, not only th uh, three from Seijin, but uh, they had three of the top four amazingly on the list. Uh, current CEO David Epstein at 57.5 million, former CEO Clay Siegel at 32.8 million, and interim CEO Roger Dancy at 36.4 million. And I think this was largely because Seijin was in an unusual position last year, definitely in transition after Siegel, uh, who was the co-founder of the company and its chairman, as well as being the CEO, 
resigned after he was arrested for domestic violence. That charge was eventually dropped. And then the company almost immediately was rumored to be up for sale with a lot of big players involved. But that didn't happen. And then early this year, Pfizer bought out Seijin for $43 billion. So when you're looking at the CEO pay here, you've got Siegel. And of his $32.8 million, $28.1 million came in equity awards, which were extended for 18 months as part of his golden parachute. And then you've got Roger Dancy. He's the longtime chief scientific officer who took over for Siegel, uh, for Siegel on, a, uh, on an interim basis. And more than half of his $36.4 million came in a special performance-based grant. The company said that in its, in its proxy as he, quote, delivered key commercial and R&D milestones. Uh, and you compare what he made, $36.4 million last year to eight point nine as his regular pay as the uh, R&D chief, and you can see quite the difference. And then lastly, there's Epstein. He was hired on November 9th. So he made more than a million dollars per day, um, and almost all of his pay came in sign-on equity awards, including $6 million in relocation expenses. You talked to an executive compensation expert, James Rita from Gallagher Consulting, and he helped explain some of these big payouts. What did he tell you? I think the quote that stuck with me was most that Jim said was, quote, there's nothing really tethering these packages besides what's the potential for these companies and what is the CEO asking for? Um, Jim also said, quote, the numbers are so warped because the values are so high, unquote. And certainly this is this is apparent when you look at uh, Epstein's pay. Um, if he played a role in pulling off the sale to Visor, um, it would be justified. Uh, the company got $43 billion when... It had a market cap of 24, uh, 24 billion. So, you know, big jump there. And you're just talking about really large numbers. Uh, and then just as an aside, uh, when I wrote this story, one of our writers, Ben Adams, after he edited it, said, do you think I can get a job at Siege? And I think that was uh, my, thought, my thought throughout the, uh, the writing of that. <laughs> well, the title of your article was appropriate. It's, it said... Coming and going paid off for biopharma CEOs in 2022. There was another company that demonstrated this last year, Biogen, which had a CEO change. Right. Uh, they hired Chris Feebucker. He replaced Michael, uh, excuse me, Michelle Vunatsos. Feebucker collected $30.5 last year, with lots of that coming as a sign-on award, just as Epstein was. Uh, and he was hired also in November. And Biogen also paid Venazzo's $26.6 million, including $8.8 million in severance pay. So these big sign-on and departure packages just are more common in big pharma, Jim Rita said. And that's because there's more volatility than in other industries. There was an interesting point in your article. It said that among the S&P 500 companies in the economy overall, there was a decline in median CEO pay for the first time in a decade, from $14.7 million in 2021 to $14.5 million last year. But this was not the case in biopharma. Yeah, it wasn't the case at all. Uh, despite that overall trend, uh, there was no evidence of any decline. Uh, of the 15 execs on our list, just two made less 
in 2022 compared to 2021, and those declines were really slight, less than a million each. And our consultant expert said that this is really nothing new, that pharma has been the highest growing sector for CEO compensation for the last several years, uh, with year-over-year growth around 25%. And then there are several other CEOs that that show big jumps. Uh, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla went from 24.3 million to 33 million last year, 36% increase, and really no surprise there considering Pfizer became the first company in pharma history to exceed 100 billion in revenue. And thanks, of course, largely to their COVID product revenue. Uh, Thermo Fisher CEO, Mark Casper, 33% hike to 28.2 million. Gilead CEO, Daniel O'Day, 12% hike to 21.6. And AbbVie CEO, Richard Gonzalez, 10% hike to 28.2 million. And getting a big boost in pay can be dangerous business, though. (laughs) As you wrote in your story about Illumina's CEO, Francis D'Souza, his pay increased 87% to $26.8 million in 2022. Yeah, the investors weren't happy with that pay package, and they forced him out in May. Um, and it might have been might have been coming anyway because the company had a eight billion acquisition of Grail in twenty twenty one that has not panned out, and its market cap has fallen from seventy five billion to thirty five billion. And this again speaks to that volatility that we mentioned earlier. Uh, Jim Rita explained that CEOs need to have good relationships with their board and investors. Um, He said, quote, you have to take advice well. Things change more quickly in pharma than, say, an industrial company. You really need to keep your eyes and your ears open. Mm -hmm. And one last thing you mentioned in your story was that CEOs from U.S. companies dominated the list, the top 14. The top 14 were all from the U.S. Yeah, that was a little bit of a surprise to me. The only CEO on the list from Europe was Pascal Sorio of AstraZeneca, and he was number 15 at 19 million. And you can really see the difference in pay when you compare companies that are uh, of similar size. An example would be Sanofi and Bristol Myers Squibb. They have roughly the same market cap, roughly the same revenue. And Sanofi CEO Paul Hudson, he uh, received 10.7 million last year compared to Giovanni. Caforio of BMS with a 20.1 million um, pay package. And you look at the pay of other European CEOs and you again see relatively low uh, packages. GSK, Emma Walmsley, 10.3 million. And Novartis CEO, Vaz Narasimhan with uh, 9.0 million. And Jim says this is really a cultural thing. He says, quote, Someone who's an engineer or a scientist is seen as worthy as someone running the company. It's been that way for 30 years in Europe, and I don't think it's going to change. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for sharing this with us, Kevin. Sure thing, Teresa. Cannes Lions is a massive event that runs every June, except for 2020. And it comes shortly after the more famous Cannes Film event. It hands out prizes based on the most creative ad marketing campaigns from around the world and from dozens of industries. And of course, that includes pharma and health. So here to talk about the pharma 
So here to talk about the pharma and health and wellness categories and the new trends we're seeing amongst the winners is Ben Adams, the editor of Fierce Pharma Marketing and our editor-in-chief, Ayla Ellison. The Fierce Pharma Marketing team has covered CanLions for years. And can you explain what the event is and why is it relevant to our pharma marketing readers and listeners? Yeah, so when you think of cans, you think of you know, Hollywood celebrities, you think of film. And that's what happens about a month before the kind of Cannes Lions, um, kind of piggyback off the success of the kind of the film Cannes. But it's uh, it's basically a pat on the back for the creativity that almost every industry in the world does. That could be everything from groceries and sports to pharma. Now, pharma's pretty niche. Um, it's certainly not the highlight globally of what Cannes Lions is. But for the Cannes Lions health section, and for pharma companies, and for the agencies who have them as clients, it's the biggest awards ceremony of the year. Um, and winning what is a, a literally a little gold statue of a lion, um, or winning the overall Grand Prix, that's the biggest thing um, in pharma marketing that you can win every year. So you can win an overall Grand Prix um, for both pharma and health and awareness. Um, that's when you're the overall winner. And there's also sort of lesser prizes. So you get gold, um, which is still a very big win. And then there's silver and then there's bronze. So what I found that's interesting <laughs> over the past three years, many of the Grand Prix and gold winners have had a very strong audio component as the central element of their winning campaign. I'd say the trend really that weighs more is towards technology and definitely with a simplicity and an innovative device or idea, either as an app or a you know a piece of technology that's taking precedent over a more traditional kind of ad campaign or an awareness campaign, which is what farmers, you know, predominantly done before this and used to win um, and simply isn't anymore. So a couple of examples in 2021. So this is when we went virtual. Wuja Audio Wearable Company. Um, with its agency FCB Health um, and Area 23, won the Creative Zoo's top pharma prize. So that's the Grand Prix for Sick Beats. It's this kind of music experience and treatment vest. I mean, literally a vest that you wear when you have cystic fibrosis. So there's been a few things like this before, but they use a specific 40 hertz deep bass vibrations. Um, and this vest loosens the mucus in the patient's lung but it doesn't have this physical pounding that you used to have with these kind of vests before. And, it, and you can have your own playlist alongside it. And there's more fun music experience. I think you can listen to that here. Turn up the volume. That's cool. <laughs> so it sounds like in 2021, it was something, you know, we start, that's like you said, there was a pause in the event um, during 2020, came back virtually in 2021, and it's this really new, innovative um, technology that's being featured as opposed to in the past, maybe it was more of a traditional pharma ad campaign that would that would win at some of the top prizes. So did that continue into 2022? Is that what is that what you saw as well with the winners in, in last year? Yeah, absolutely. And audio again comes into play here. So the winning campaign, the main Grand Prix came on Dell Technologies 
obviously not a pharmaceutical company is Intel. And they partnered with the car and automotive firm Rolls Royce and the MND's um, the MND Association. So this was a pretty hard hitting campaign. It's called "I Will Always Be Me." We talked about this on the podcast last year when it won, and this focuses on motor neuron disease, specifically on the disease's very cruel way of stealing patients' voices. So what it does in a nutshell is these um, these uh, tech giants got together and they engineered what they called a voice bank. So this is a digital copy of a patient's voice. They have a kind of specific script that they will read into this technology. And so when they lose their ability to speak, they can still actually you know speak as they want to using their own voice in the future rather than these kind of robotic voices that um, we've become quite used to. And And it, you know, again, very simple in the kind of setup and the idea of it the execution as well not particularly difficult um you know in terms of technology but in terms of how patients can feel and that their families and themselves can hear their own voice really important um 2023 we had a another kind of similar one so this only happened last month of course again not a pharma company they're called euro pharma but they're actually a med tech company um and they were being helped by Argentinian Stensu Creative Agency. So they won the Grand Prix for um, an app which allows people with Parkinson's disease to perform facial exercises that slow the progression of the muscle atrophy that happens with Parkinson's. So yeah, most Parkinson's patients will be given a kind of physiological thing to do with their face, but it can be quite boring, quite mind-numbingly boring. And making you do that for the amount of time that you need, which is more than sort of 30 seconds or a minute, up to half an hour is ideal. They've used that kind of, um, what they've done with the app is that they can track and aid a patient to use their facial muscles while scrolling through news and social media feeds so that they, they're distracted by the fact that they're looking through those things. And it has on the phone these kind of pinpoints where it can say smile, frown, look to the left, look to the right, look around. And you can kind of do that whilst doing your own thing. So again, not a pharmaceutical company, not a drug therapy, something very different. And again, something, you know, innovative, but fairly straightforward. And I think one of the other uh, probably a notable trend um, listening to you go over each of the winners for the past few years has been they really do put the patient at the center of what's going on. It's it's really, really patient centered and focused. And of course, uh, the, you know, many of the, the pharmaceutical uh, ad campaigns uh, try to do the same, but it seems like these innovative technologies are really um, standing out, especially in the the eyes of the of the judges at Can Lions. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the ads that that took some of the top prizes this year? Yeah, so the other gold winning campaign was from something called the Chrysalis Initiative. So this is with inequality you can't ignore. It's by the New York agency Eversana and Touch. And this aims specifically to shut the racial inequities in breast cancer care. Uh, this is an issue that especially impacts black women. It was uh, initially a failure. So it was a really bold campaign. It was geared towards healthcare providers. And it was, they basically wanted to put their own posters up within the hospitals themselves. And the hospitals turned around and said, no, we don't want to do that. So the campaign features topless black cancer survivors with the inequality sign painted over their breasts. So Eversana wanted the posters to be sparse and focused on the impactful images, but they also needed a way to uh, communicate the stats in a similarly powerful manner to show the disparities of breast cancer care. So they used this augmented reality offered by Eversana as a way to get people to engage with the stats. 
So what it is, it's basically triggered through Instagram. You use the QR code, it pops up in Instagram, and the unequal sign shows up directly over the poster. Then the experience happens on the screen, and you can click through and see the stats. So initially, when these guys wanted to put them in hospitals, the hospital said no. So they said, well, we're not going to give up. And they put it on the bus shelters outside all of the hospitals that they initially wanted to use in order to literally put this in the face of the hospital workers who they were concerned had this unconscious bias, which I think in a very clever way has absolutely showed that up and then still managed to get through. Again, and I I would go back to this patient centricity that this isn't just patient centric, but it's quite out there and it's quite progressive in the way that they're thinking. And I think sometimes there is uh, a kind of paying lip service in a, in a sense to patient centricity from pharma. And I think wanting to win cans sometimes is more important perhaps than the actual campaign themselves. So we've not had a pharma winner for the pharma category of cans since 2019. That was a GSK campaign specific to COPD in China. I think that was quite good. Um, we obviously had the break in 2020, but the three years before that, we also didn't have any pharma Grand Prix winners at cans. The last one, I believe, was in 2015. That's when I actually attended. And the Grand Prix winner was a campaign for AstraZeneca. And it was, and I'm sure they won't mind me saying, <laughs> given how much time has gone past, absolutely ludicrous. Um, <laughs> it's several minutes of two dying fish talking on ice about high fat in the blood. It's called Take It From a Fish. And it was bizarre. I don't think it was patient centric. I think so. There was a lot of kind of stock clips of fat men drinking alcohol and eating cheese um, interspersed with these two fish talking to each other in a way for the first minute. I was incredibly confused about what on earth it was about. Um, And that really tells you, I mean, that was only eight years ago and that won the Grand Prix. If you compare that to some of the winners we've been talking about um, in the last few years, you know, the voice bank, um, it's just a million miles away. So I would say the farm industry of reputation and how its brands are perceived massively went up since 2020 when Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca and the industry itself was working so hard to try and get these um, COVID vaccines up. We watched with bated breath everything that pharma was doing. And it seemed as if we all became aware of ourselves and our health and our ability to become a patient very much more than we ever had done and became aware of the farm industry a lot more. I would really question just how impactful, creative and patient-centric a lot of these farmer ad campaigns are now. Most of them wouldn't like me saying that, but it's, um, I mean, the proof's in the pudding, right? They're not winning. They're not winning for a reason. And I think some other, other media are happy to point out that hey they got some silvers and bronzes but you know if we're if we were going in for a category you know for best farmer reporting and we were losing out to companies that don't even do that i would find that very strange and i'm sure it's the same kind of kind of the same with the farmer industry right it's really astonishing to think about the campaign that won with the with the two fish that were you know talking back and forth versus uh, what you explained uh, the campaigns that that won this year with some 
absolutely innovative uh, technology that is improving the lives of patients. And so moving forward, what what do you think we can expect, Ben? Do you, do you think that it will be more uh, non-pharma companies taking home the top prize in the pharma category? I mean, that's the trajectory, right? They And, and they, need, they need to do something different. I think they would need to understand that there is an issue, that they clearly aren't quite getting it, and that perhaps CANS and the jury um, that decides on these things have have started to change and and move into different directions. I mean, winning creativity is really difficult. You look at who wins, you know, the Cannes Film Festival, the Oscars every year. Sometimes there's a trend there, sometimes there isn't. Sometimes they're trying to think more outside of the box. And I think here, the Cannes jurors simply want genuinely creative and decent ideas. And I think being a big pharma company 10 years ago, you had the money and you had the clout to be able to do that. And now I think other companies like Dell, like Philips, you know, like these other technologically minded companies are coming in and maybe getting it a bit better and not just thinking about winning cans, but, you know, maybe thinking a lot more about what is this campaign actually doing? I mean, the Eversana in touch one, they took a real risk and they were rejected, right? And they, you know, they had to come back and really rethink. I cannot imagine a pharmaceutical company taking that kind of risk, doing that sort of thing, and then saying, "Well, you know, to heck with it. We're gonna we're gonna stick it outside the bus, you know, on your bus stops. <laughs> have to see it. You're coming into work. You're gonna see it. You know, the inequality in in breast cancer care for Black women is a huge issue, and they're proving their own point by not wanting to engage with it. So we're going to make you engage with it. Can you imagine a GSK or an Avartis or a, or a Pfizer doing that? And I know in uh, for this year and in years past, um, you've had the opportunity to um, talk with some of the uh, winners. And I know others on the uh, pharma marketing uh, editorial team have also interviewed some of the, the past winners as well. Is there anything that really sticks out or any anything that they've shared with you um, that's worth noting or that you'd like to share too? So yeah, last year we interviewed one of the winners um, who got the gold. So that was Claire Gillis. She's CEO of VMLY and our health. That's one of the agencies behind the winners. Um, and so they were behind both I Will Always Be Me, which we've already discussed about, and also in the health and wellness category, which we've not talked so much about, because again, it's not specific to pharma. But they won this for a mosquito coil. It is literally like a, a, a coil that you throw onto your garbage um, and it will... Um, then heat up and release this kind of uh, chemical that will kill mosquitoes around you. Something probably most of us in the Northern Hemisphere don't think about, but of course, stopping the spread of malaria in many parts of the world is absolutely paramount. And a very simple piece of cheap technology that can be used en masse. And the kind of marketing behind it was also very straight, very, you know, specific for what it was. And they won for that. And Claire told me, you know, patients weren't even really talked about five years ago it's a direct quote from her when i interviewed her last year health wasn't even talked about you know maybe two or three years ago and these campaigns the camp this specific mosquito coil campaign saying that probably wouldn't even been created pre-covid um, this is a direct quote what are we seeing and my sense of that here is this was at cans 22 is that multidisciplinary teams are coming together with a focus so tech with creativity, with strategy and with innovation are converging and saying, well, what can we create? Now, Claire isn't going to badmouth pharma because she works for them. They are her clients. Um, and this is about as much as any agency leader would say. But I think, you know, you read between the lines there and it's, well, a lot of these companies are coming 
together. And you'll notice a lot of these winners are, as she's mentioned, multidisciplinary. It's not just one as an agency. There's a company and there's obviously two or three companies involved. And they are using and bouncing ideas off each other to do something that's, you know, exciting and different. And I think farm is still quite insular, quite conservative. It will use an agency, but from what I know is that they are not that keen on relinquishing too much control over to that. Again, they have to exist within a strict regulation. There are very different regulations all over the world and they have to adhere to all of those. But if you want to do something that not just wins cans, but I think above that is specifically, you know, patient-centric and impactful and isn't just going to up prescriptions to your medication, but actually make a difference, then I think, you know, taking in Claire's advice and, and looking to why other people have won and you haven't probably is is a good starting point. Well, the bar has absolutely been raised with with what qualifies or what will take the top prize at Cannes. So that's that is clear. And so it'll be interesting to see if if pharma stays the same course or if they do uh, decide to to take some of these new approaches to their ad campaigns as well. And we'll see what happens next year. But as you said, it looks like the trajectory right now is that big pharma companies will not be taking home the top prize in the pharma category. Yeah, if you're taking bets, it'll be a non-pharma company with an audio component. There's there's my two cents on what it will be next year. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.